Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. I have a very special guest here today. This is actually one of my oldest childhood friends. His name is Danny Frank, and he has been on the spiritual path for over 10 years now. He's done various trainings in meditation, yoga, shadow work, and he's been involved in the nonprofit sector of business, sales, marketing, and I've always wanted to actually have a chat with him on this podcast specifically because this is actually the guy who introduced me to, in essence, the spiritual path or getting more into things like meditation. And it's it's been a long time coming. So, Danny, thank you so much for being here on the Zen Stoic Path. Absolutely, man. Stoked to be here. Yeah, man. So, so you and I have been having some interesting conversations. You are officially the first person to have read what will be the new Zen Stoic book whenever I uh, come up with a title for that. That's right. <laughs> so you, you've had some, you know, a lot of experiences with different spiritual teachers, practices. What would you say kind of inspired you to begin going on a path like that? Oh, wow. Um, I'd have to go back to, you know, early childhood. Uh, I always had a recurring experience. I trace it back to this recurring experience of when I would dream at night as a little mm-hmm. kid. And I would experience myself falling at the end of a, a nightmare or something like that. And I would vividly remember uh, falling from like the top of my room into my body. Mm-hmm. And so from this young age, you know, I was kind of semi-aware of this idea or this notion that I existed outside of my body. Mm-hmm. And my family, uh, my family's Jewish, but not religious at all. Um, I never had any type of spiritual teaching introduced to me. Um, but I was always kind of seeking that, uh, seeking answers to what is this right like what is life what is the meaning of this what what am i who am i right and so i ultimately um was introduced to a book at age 15 called autobiography of a yogi Mm -hmm. which had a profound impact on me um kind of decided then and there i felt it in my in my chest my gut that that yogic path of that meditative path of Mm self-realization and you know so, uh, actualization of the highest potential of a human being in terms of, you know, perception beyond these realms and mm-hmm. transcending the suffering of these realms, things like that was what I really wanted to do in this life. And it wasn't then until I was about 18 years old and somebody said to me, you know, they put fluoride in the water and I don't mean to digress too much, but I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? What's fluoride? And yeah. that sent me down the <laughs> rabbit hole of how there's all these things going on in this world and you know, the system, the matrix system we're in all this stuff. But that then begged the question to me is like, okay, what's the solution? What do I do about it? Mm-hmm. And it fairly quickly became clear to me that the solution was to become the best possible version of myself, mm-hmm. to be able to uh, you know uplift my own consciousness, to, to kind of liberate myself from this shackles of the mind that we're kind of born into in this world, mm-hmm. and then to help others to do the same. So that really began my spiritual path at, at 18. That's uh, that's that's really interesting, man. Because I, I, what one thing that I really like is that I think a lot of people when they they hear these things that you know kind of bring you down the rabbit hole of conspiracy of like, oh, there's they're putting this stuff in the water and then they're trying to control you and this and that. A lot of people they obsess about that idea, but not necessarily about like, well, what do I even do about it? Right. Like, what can I do personally? Because I find that many people that they almost like fetishize this sense of significance by trying to tackle or at least trying to talk about these insurmountable problems that they're not doing shit about. 
and they just instead like to kind of complain and hear the voice. But it seems like you took a path where you're like, you know, I'm not just going to talk about it. Like what, what's something that I can do for myself? And it led you to being the best possible version of yourself. So trying to be, yeah, (laughs) we're all doing our best. (laughs) So, I mean, like for, for you today, like what you've obviously been through a lot of different experiences, a lot of different teachers and trainings. Like what was, what would you say was one of your most important teachers or like some of the most profound lessons that you learned along this path? Yeah. Well, so as I was 18 and going deep down those rabbit holes, um, through my mother who was involved at a yoga studio, who kind of had some spiritual friends there, I was brought to meet this, it's kind of like a, like a Christian mystic. So he was into, uh, so he's, you know, 70, 75 year old man. Um, he was very much into uh, Christian science, like philosophies mm-hmm. uh main author that he you know like this that could you know kind of synthesize that is a guy named joel goldsmith another one's emmett fox really profound stuff coincidentally like six months earlier i had you know met someone who just seemed so liberated in their mind and we hung out just connected like randomly and he invited me to his house and we we're just hanging out with a bunch of people and i asked him like dude how'd you how'd you get so free you know like mm-hmm. i literally asked him that like dude teach me i was like this kid and i wanted to know and he told me to read this book called find and use your inner power, mm. which is amazing by the way. Um, and, uh, so coincidentally same, that was Emmett Fox, Christian mystic, right? So this Christian mysticism stuff, this Gnostic stuff was, you know, these guys in the early like 1900s who taught essentially like the real teachings of Yeshua ben Yosef, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, you know, um, this concept that you are a divine child or son or daughter of God. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you and the father are one, um, you are God essentially. And that the doors of consciousness into heaven and hell are revolving doors. These, there are states of consciousness that are ever present and available to us that the kingdom of heaven is within you. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these basic tenets and precepts. Right. And so then the, the, the work in that line of philosophy or, you know, techniques becomes to uh, engage in contemplative meditation which involves uh, sitting or in meditation or quote-unquote prayer and Mm -hmm. connecting with that higher level of consciousness that's that is within you Mm -hmm. Um, so this guy you know I I ended up sitting with this guy once a week for an hour and a half he would give me a book Um, he'd have me read like one chapter every day for seven days some with some really like profound stuff. He told me to meditate minimum 20 minutes every day, some things like this. I'd come back the next week and we talk and I'd ask him all these questions. You know, what about this? Like, what about karma? What about, you know, oh my mom and like all this stuff. She's always like throwing these energetic daggers at me and I'm trying to meditate and you know, I had moved back in with her. For, at mm-hmm. that time. And he would like almost always respond with the same question and this look in his eye and this energy and this guy, when I say this guy was like mystical and you know, if you ever met someone like that, he was definitely yeah. on that level. You're like that. This this man carries some wizardry, exactly, just <laughs> within him. You <laughs> palpable sense of peace when you yes. sat across the table from him, mm. and you know, um, and like a little bit of joy behind it. You know, he yes. was really there, and so he would respond with the same question to me anytime I asked him something. He would say, or the same you know, suggestion. We say, take it into meditation. Um, he wouldn't answer <laughs> I'm sure at the questions. time you did not like that. <laughs> no, I was not. I was not enjoying that, and. Uh, but 
it was, it worked and you know, it took me a little while. Um, I had, a, I have, I had, I have a very active mind, mm-hmm. um, meditation and different practices I've found over the years have really helped me with that. Mm-hmm. But I found a little style that worked for me and I ended up getting an experience where I got to a state of like no mind, right? My mind mm-hmm. became quiet. And from that place, uh, things started to unfold. Um, so, you know, that man, uh, definitely had a major impact kind of steering me on to just helping me get to that first experience yes. of still no mind. Um, because I, I do believe that's the most important thing, right? Is, is to get to that experience and then mm-hmm. try to cultivate a daily practice where you try to dip into it a little bit each day. It doesn't have to be an hour of meditation yes. every day, right? It's just the, the motion of, it's a, it's a muscle that you can exercise mm-hmm. and over time becomes a little quicker, a little easier to get there. Mm-hmm. And ultimately the goal being to essentially live in that state. Yes. Tap into it every morning and remain there. Yes. And then when you kind of go off the track, bring yourself back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds a lot like the, uh, the concept in Zen of non-self or of original mind mm-hmm. where it's not like I'm meditating right now. It's just, you're just present. You're just there. And that I think that's interesting that I know when we talked about this when we were younger, it was almost like all of the focus and prioritization was like getting into this state and living there all the time. But then it seems like now there's a, a process of like just tap into it a little bit every day. Like it's just a practice. You don't need to like always be there, which I think is interesting because when I thought about the creation of Zen Stoicism, you know, I always really like Zen, but it seemed like all the focus was in like <laughs> being in that state. Right. And if you weren't meditating, then you weren't really practicing Zen. And it's like, okay, that's a little weird for me. Like it it's, doesn't seem very practical, which is what attracted me to stoicism. Mm-hmm. And so in essence, it's like, remember this state, practice being in this state, but also, you know, live your life as a human being. Absolutely. You don't need to like, <laughs> you know, you don't need to not be here all the time. Right. Um, so I think that's really interesting that you, you kind of bring those in to every day. And the other thing too is that, you know, this teacher would tell you to meditate on it or bring it into meditation, which is interesting because at least in Zen, Zen doesn't find its wisdom in the great answers or profound answers that it can provide somebody, but rather in thought provoking or doubt inducing questions mm-hmm. on somebody's current experience. That's fascinating because and I'm, I was aware of that, but it just clicked in my mind for the first time thinking in this context, because that's a very similar practice in the Christian mysticism, mm-hmm. which is that contemplative meditation is taking a question into meditation that absolutely dumbfounds your brain. Yeah. It cannot answer. And so it gets, and you, and it encourage you even to let your mind go through trying to answer the question mm-hmm. until it exhausts itself. And you're just like, okay, what's the answer? And you, the idea is you get to a place where your mind's like becomes receptive mm-hmm. in that state apparently and i do believe from experience that there's a there's this voice this internal voice is still small voice you know different traditions call it different things but this consciousness within you within all of us that uh that speaks to us that can guide us deeper into those experiences into that into the healing and the transcending of you know of whatever suffering there might be in this life Mm -hmm. yeah definitely it's um that's really interesting that the idea that you talked about were basically your mind is trying to answer and wrestle with this question and then exhaust itself. 
that is the whole purpose of in Zen. They have something called koans. Have you heard of those before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're like riddles that are meant to induce doubt and like (laughs) almost like create unnecessary noise in the mind so that the mind realizes the futility in the effort. And then in that moment has a sudden awakening or, or Satori, a sudden enlightenment Mm -hmm. because it realizes the futility of such a pursuit. And, um, I think that, that that's really interesting that that whole concept and and I didn't realize that Christian mysticism was actually so had so many parallels yeah. to the practice of Zen. It it's, seems like a lot of these spiritual practices have these parallels. They just exactly. say it in different ways. It's deeply fascinating when you go into the you know the the Gnostic or like occult tra- mystical spiritual traditions within each religion within mm-hmm. each region of the world. You know the, the Kabbalist pr- uh, techniques and practices within Judaism and the Sufism within Islam and so on and so forth, you know, it's all, and they're all like basically exactly the same, a little bit of different flavor, mm-hmm. slightly different style. It's always the same universal truth. Right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier. Yeah, for sure. With, you know, that concept of, uh, you know, Zen and the typical practitioner seeking to always be in that state mm-hmm. of, inner peace and perpetual it's not that it's not always sustainable right like we live in a very fast-paced world you know Mm. we don't you know if we were like farmers 1300 years ago in like the step hills of japan or something you know Mm. there's probably a lot of samurai wars going on back then we'd probably be doing that but you know (laughs) you know you get the idea right we were living more in harmony with nature where you know it's it's maybe a little bit different it's a little easier to to cultivate that state and remain there but we live in this fast paced world and regardless it, I think I agree with you strongly. It's, it, it's, it's important. So this is what I wanted to say. The idea, something from, uh, from deep, like yogic philosophy that has stuck with me. I really liked, mm-hmm. they talk about the, that dharana, this process in meditation, which is considered like single pointed focus mm-hmm. is not the practice of just single pointedly focusing on one thing. It's the process of every time that your mind wanders somewhere else of bringing it back to that one thing. Mm. Um, and that's like one technique in you know, yogic meditation. Yes. Um, so what interests me and fascinates me is, is that concept of, you know, when we're in day to day life and naturally mm. our minds will stray from that state of peace. I had gotten to this point where I'd meditate for 30 minutes in the morning. I'd get to a very deep and sh- stable place of peace and stillness mm-hmm. and bliss and going through my day, I would quickly like leave it. And I went through this process of how do I stay there? Mm-hmm. Ultimately what came to me at that time was the breath. Yes. Right? Remaining connected to my breath helped me to remain present. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so there's different tech. It's like that, that process of kind of bringing ourselves back, you know, yes. it's like, it's this, it's, it, it's never ending or I want to say it's never ending, but it's, it can be a very long process. It could be a lifelong process. Yes. Potentially multiple lifetimes, but that's, that's, and that's a gift though. You know, it's, mm-hmm. we come here to learn and, and it's a beautiful experience and you know, there's now these new things that are coming out regarding the, not so new, but um, you know, the default mode network and the self-referential narrative, right. And that mm-hmm. those parts of the brain, what are those for people who are not familiar? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but in, in layman's terms, the the default mode network is the this pathway within the brain that involves like the frontal lobe, mm-hmm. certain other parts of the brain that neurons are very heavily 
wired together mm. and essentially a hundred percent of human beings on this planet at this, I'm like in our day and age. Um, it's this m- network where it is very focused on external things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's where what is called, what's been called the self referential narrative takes place, which is that, you know, inner voice, that chatter in our mind, that narrative, that's always referring to the self mm. like, Oh, I'm going to be late for this. Or what am I going to do later? What am I going to have for lunch? Well, I wonder what this person thinks of me like constant, right? It's that self referential narrative. And so there's this philosophy in, and this ties into a lot into Zen, I believe, mm. as well as this, the, you know, non-dual, mm-hmm. um, Advaita philosophy of yogic practice and meditation of, you know, uh, striving to identify more with the capital S self as mm. opposed to the ego mind self, like my little self, like what am I going to do or who want to this people think or whatever. Yes. And so what's interesting is and they're finding is that now they're hooking people up to, you know, EKGs they hook these little magnets on their brain and they can see when the DMN and the, the default mode network, the self referential mm-hmm. narrative is activated when it's deactivated, what techniques can be used to deactivate the default mode network. That's things fascinating. Like psilocybin <laughs> and yeah. LSD and things like, like a lot of the psychedelics deactivate the default mode network. Interesting. Activate all the other parts of the brain, bring it into more, co- more, more coherent state. Yes. Things like meditation, um, things like using uh, breath work, certain mm-hmm. breath work techniques will do it. Um, so, and it's very interesting, you know, there's a guy named, uh, Dr. Gary Weber, who mm-hmm. was a very, you know, dude's a genius, you know, mm-hmm. he had held, held multiple degrees, uh, worked in business and research sectors for decades. And his experience was he had a hyperactive mind. I mean, he was mm-hmm. like tortured by it. So when he was in his twenties going through some type of grad school, yes. he had this moment where he had been, you know, on three hours of sleep over the span of like three days of studying and finals mm-hmm. and whatever. And his mind became so exhausted. And at one moment in this random day, he had this moment of like inner peace. Like his mind just went quiet yeah. for 30 seconds and he, it brought him to tears. He was like, it was like this breath of fresh air that he'd never gotten in his life. That's mm-hmm. that his so deprived of that experience. It seems right which a lot of us are, you know, um, mm. you know, when we think about it, like when was the last time we had like 15 seconds of just absolute uninterrupted presence and appreciation for whatever like was going on for me, it, it was rare experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's something that I strive to experience and cultivate more of every day. It's mm-hmm. very important. Right. Um, but Gary Weber's interesting. So he, he had that experience and he, he thought to himself, like, how do I get more of this? Yes. So he ends up over many years, still in his professional career, very much functioning in the world, but he studied Zen meditation. He, I forget the name of the master that he sat with for like 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And following that and different, different, uh, several other different things, he came to meet uh, Ramana Maharishi, mm-hmm. who was a, you know, like a yogic meditation style guru from Southern India who taught Advaita non-dual self-inquiry style Mm. path of meditation, which was simply asking the question at the core of it. It's like asking the question, who am I? Mm. Right. And going through all the different possible answers. But at the end of the day, what becomes apparent is you're, you know, we're not the thoughts. We're not the mind. We're not the body. You know, we're this still, we're this observer behind all these things. Right. Um, 
And so long story short, he ends up getting back to that experience mm-hmm. in like a big way where he had like still mind for 30 minutes straight started having, you know, I mean like beatific visions of the Christian would call it, you know, just the mm-hmm. spiritual experiences. Yes. And, um, he ends up and, and then has them consistently and more and more. And over a few years, apparently gets to this place where he lives in that state where his default mode network and they can hook him up to machines. Like it's not there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that, like they literally tested on him. And, and coherent mm-hmm. and he doesn't have a self-referential narrative. He, he claims that he, you know, uh, wakes up in the morning. Occasionally he'll wake up in the morning and his self-referential narrative is going, you know, okay, what am mm-hmm. I going to do this and that? But 95 or more percent of his waking life and existence at this point mm-hmm. in his life after these years of practice is just a state of peace, mm-hmm. presence and gratitude and a, a light. He describes it, I think, is like a like a light sense of joy. You know, it's just like this undertone of just joy mm-hmm. is that is our apparently is our natural state. Right. When the suffering functional narrative isn't there mm-hmm. and we're free to just be present and appreciate this incredibly miraculous gift of life. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you think of when we're children and how things were so novel and beautiful and amazing, that's what this life is. And we just kind of lose, I think we lose sight of that sometimes mm-hmm. being in that frontal lobe, that default mode network yeah. all the time. Always like I, 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 right. me, me, me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and it can be, so I struggled with this, right? Because I think to myself, well, default mode network can be useful. I mean, our frontal lobe is useful. Obviously we need to plan things, right? Mm-hmm. We have to, and so it gets interesting and he shares that. And, and this is subtext too. He apparently he's taught this technique to a lot of people. He's mm-hmm. written a few books. They're incredible. Um, but and there's a lot of people who have claimed they have gotten to the same state. Well, what are some of the him. books that he's, uh, that he's written just in case anybody listening wants to check Absolutely. out some of his work. So his first book is called happiness beyond thought. Hmm. Then and it and it goes in, in like a steps process. They're not in, in extremely long books. They're very easy to uh, to read, and they offer a lot of practical techniques and really good stuff. The next one is called Evolving Beyond Thought. Mm. I believe the third, which I have not read, is, is Dancing Beyond Thought. Mm. Um, and that's the idea, right? Like getting beyond thought. I'm, I'm gonna um, check like these thought, out myself. This <laughs> right? concept that thought is kind of the cause of suffering. Yes, self referential narrative. When thought's not there, we're just free to just be mm. and. There's no suffering in that. Um, so in any case, so his experience and many others, mm-hmm. when they've gotten to that state, like perpetually has been that cause I've, I've tapped into that state in my life and in my journeys, but never while I've been working in the world, a 50 hour week job mm-hmm. in sales in nonprofit sector, starting a bit, nothing like that. You know, um, it's been when I'm at an ashram, I'm in nature, mm. And I'll have that experience when I get back into the world. My mind's very quick to, you know, get back to the regular motions, want to stay grounded. And that's like been my thought process. But um, his experience and many others has been that once they get to that state where Mm -hmm. the DMN is deactivated, their self-referential narrative is quiet or non-existent. And they're just basically existing in Mm -hmm. the state of peace and bliss, right? They're just being but they still have jobs. They still work in the world. And what they found is that their mental acuity, mm-hmm. and their communication skills, their ability to plan, their ability to practice effective time management increased like dramatically and all these things. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's like their minds they are not even actively, it's like they're no longer like driving the vehicle, mm-hmm. right? Literally. 
they're not like thinking, okay, what am I going to do today? Like things like that. Obviously there's some level of this, but they're really just, you know, sit, they're going along for the ride, mm. which is this very interesting concept to me. Like yeah. Experience that, it, right? That's fascinating, man. Sometimes like life live, life can live us, right? Like I believe in there's the varying levels of consciousness, mm. you know, even on a basic psychology standpoint, you got the subconscious mind, the egoic mm-hmm. conscious mind, and you have the super conscious mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you go a little deeper, if you get into the metaphysics of it, you know, and you might subscribe to the belief there's a soul, right? There's a, or there's an oversoul and there's this consciousness that's all around us within us that is, you know, infinitely intelligent that kind of guides life. Mm. Um, and it becomes very enjoyable, a very enjoyable experience to sit back and let that consciousness kind of navigate life yes. for us, um, as opposed to trying to grasp and attach mm. to things, right? The root um, of suffering. <laughs> so very interesting stuff. Yeah, that, that, that is, I'm going to have to check those books out because, uh, I'm kind of blown away with this idea of, the turning off of the self-referential narrative, which which is interesting that you bring it to my attention because before you and I spoke about it, I know we spoke about it before this podcast, but before we actually talked about it, I just didn't even know the concept of that. Um, so it's really cool to hear that and that there is somebody who literally does this work. Um, I can check right. out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, love, I love the work that people do when they're, creating exercises of self-inquiry. I think you and I were talking about it before that obviously me being in the coaching world and you having had many different spiritual teachers or business teachers like I have, there there is something that always kind of sounds the uh, the BS alarms for me. And it's typically when somebody's trying to give you the answers or tell you what your lessons are, what your answers are. Right. Um, rather than to examine the self, to inquire with the self and in essence, allow your own answers to emerge. And, you know, that's the thing that I'm always wary of is like, is who's trying to give you the answers? Because typically, most of the time they're full of shit, but it's more so the person who's like asking you the right questions and allowing self-discovery that really helps you to evolve and develop yourself in your, uh, you know, dare I say the word awakening. (laughs) It's like that concept that the, the teaching is not the truth. Yes. And then the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. That's right. Um, You know, it's an interesting thing because at the same time it was, it's been my experience in this idea of yan yoga Mm. which is one style in the yogic system. It's interesting. They have all these different paths towards enlightenment. You got bhakti yoga, the Hare Krishnas they are chanting and singing and Mm -hmm. devotional love style. A lot of, a lot of Christians, I think in the world kind of who are really practicing, right? Like Mm -hmm. really, they follow that bhakti style of devotional love Mm -hmm. to kind of get themselves closer to a experience of their higher consciousness or the divine love. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you got, you know, Hatha yoga, just being in postures, right? Which can take you so far, in my opinion. And then you got, it's more foundational, they consider. Mm-hmm. You got styles of meditation, different things. Yan yoga is the path of wisdom. Mm. Right? And the practice therein is to read scripture, essentially, right? So you're reading like the Bhagavad Gita and the mm-hmm. Srimad Bhagavatam and these books, which are like really profound and some of the things that are in them. Um, 
and I always enjoyed some of the Eastern script. No, I, I digress. Uh, but it's interesting because when I was going into these meditations and trying to seek out that experience, mm-hmm. what I, what I found was that having read and learned of some of this yan, right? This wisdom, mm-hmm. right? Of Baba Ram Das's book, Be Here Now, mm-hmm. which, you know, has, is just like loaded with wisdom in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. It's this one page where it refers to, you know, the path, right? And like, how do you get there? Like, mm-hmm. We've all kind of got a glimpse of it, right? If we've sought it out. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, how do I get there? How do I kind of stay there? It's so nice there. Um, mm-hmm. That peaceful, blissful, elevated state within my own heart, you know? Yes. And he, he kind of says on that page something to the tune of you can take this like really hard route and just try to figure it out bumping into walls and things and obstacles like through life Mm -hmm. and just kind of like going on your own or you can look to this guidance that's you can kind of learn a little bit from all these different beings Mm -hmm. men and women who have walked this planet gotten there and shown somewhat of the and lit and lighted they lit torches along the way Mm -hmm. you know like Jesus or Buddha or any number, you know, um, mm-hmm. Paramahansa Yogananda or Maharaji and all these different beings that, and, and again, the teaching not being the truth, you know, none of these beings can say like, this is what it is. And then you read the words and you instantly have this enlightened. Yes. Now you're enlightened. No, it doesn't work like that, <laughs> but it helps. It mm-hmm. helps the soul navigate because in, you know, this, in this world, the, uh, the yogis would call it the, you know, Maya, the illusion, right? Everything mm-hmm. is polarized. Everything is, you know, up, down, left, right, light, dark, right? Tao gets into that in a deep way as well. Mm-hmm. And so how do we get to that still center where all is one? Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it, it's, it can be tough, but this, I do believe that the more important as- factor obviously is the direct experience and mm. ultimately that's what has to occur yes. and i believe it is unique for each individual and each soul mm-hmm. at the same time some some of that wisdom it can be helpful for mm-hmm. anyone um and and it can and it just can come from any any way and just to be mindful of the source right like yes you know follow like these plastic gurus on instagram or something you know, like, <laughs> um a lot of traps on that like it's all light and love like yeah yeah so a little more nuanced than that i'm very uh, i'm glad that you said that because i'm curious like obviously in your experience you've uh interacted with some of these plastic gurus in real life not just online sure or some (laughs) or some of the ones that you know they they attempt to take us for a ride and i'm i'm definitely no stranger to that i've Mm -hmm. certainly had my experiences of you know getting manipulated taken for a ride so to speak what are um, some things that a person could watch out for if uh, if they run into something like that? Mm. Well, ideally, someone has their intuition mm-hmm. somewhat calibrated and they're sensitive to it when they just follow their gut feeling. But at the same time, that that can be that can be tricky, right? Mm-hmm. Some of these people, you know, can be extremely skilled in the art of manipulation or mm-hmm. almost hypnosis, right? In their language and 
you know, I'm, I don't know if anybody, if you see that documentary Kumate. On oh my God. That was one of my favorite things that I've ever watched in my Mind life. Blowing, right? <laughs> it was so good. So if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Kumate, I don't know if it's still, I don't think it's still on Netflix. So this was years ago, but it is, if you could tell what the documentary is about, yeah, it's, the basic it's amazing. Is, is, uh, an Indian man, uh, like, you know, Indian American man, he, he was kind of blown away by this idea of these fake gurus all around the world, right? You've got, mm-hmm. um, Bikram, you know, and oh. Osho and, <laughs> and not to, not to discount Osho. I know a lot of people really like stuff. <laughs> I do believe, and you know, Yogi Bhajan and, and all gets this in a sec. I want to comment on this in a second, but he was fascinated by this idea in India. It's very common. You got a lot of bona fide spiritual masters and beings and people mm-hmm. really, help guide people along the spiritual path, guide them to their own direct experience. Mm. But you've got a lot of others who are just spewing this love and light nonsense or whatever they're spewing and, and making hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars off of the, you know, and, and they're just very skilled manipulators, mm-hmm. con artists essentially. Yeah. So he, he decided he wanted to try a social experiment and document it in this film where he, you know, basically pretended to be a guru. Puts on his whole dhoti, right? His whole like traditional guru yeah. orange robe. You know, his hair ties out. his hair out. Yeah, grew his hair, ties it up, you know. And, you know, within what, like a couple months? Like yeah. Weeks, he had this like following of like 100 people yeah. who were like so devoted to him. And they would interview these people and... And, you know, they all end up giving their consent to be on this documentary afterward. I don't, but, you know, they were like, I don't know. I just feel this deep sense of peace with him and his words are so true. And he, he himself was kind of stating before going into it, you know, I have no real spiritual background. You know, I have mm-hmm. a little bit of a practice of meditation. It's been something that's interested me mildly through my life, but it's not really like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not a guru. Like, let me make right. that very clear. And then goes into this and he had like a hundred people that were like bowing at his feet, you know, anything he said to them, they would take as absolute truth. And this can be really dangerous. This has happened. Most definitely. Yeah. And I think in Kumare, what was also really interesting is it, it kind of gives way to this thing that Alan Watts talked about in one of his lectures once. Um, and I'll tie this in, in just a moment, but basically in Kumare, there were moments that during the yoga class or during the meditation, he would literally say, I am a fake, but he would say it in his Indian accent. That was not his actual accent. (laughs) He would say, I'm a fake. Uh, You know, this is all an act. And he would, he would say these things over and over again. And people would be like, wow, like this is so insightful. Not realizing that he's like, literally like, yo, I'm making this up. (laughs) (laughs) And, and the part there, there's something that Alan Watts said in one of his lectures once where he's like, where does the guru get their authority from? And he's like, the guru gets their authority from the followers basically giving it to him, like handing it over. And, say, and like without that, the guru would have no authority. Mm-hmm. And in that documentary, that very thing happened. So it's like, it's not even like, yes, there is a whole method or way of manipulating people and conning people in this. But at the same time, that doesn't work if the person doesn't give it over to them, which I found really interesting is that like, they literally gave this to him. And even when he would say like, I'm making this whole thing up, like <laughs> this is an act. Uh, this, I'm a fake. Like he would say these words like verbatim, <laughs> right? Like in the middle of a lecture or something, yeah. kind of sprinkle that in or while but he would like, say it really like hip, hypnotically, right? <laughs> 
you know, so it sounded like it's all an act. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It sounded like it was just part of the magic. <laughs> so what I find is interesting is like, you know, it's not just, it's not like people are, are helpless against this stuff, but we also hand over that authority willingly sometimes. Right. Yeah. And it was a difficult thing for me that I went through firsthand. Um, actually not to that extent, but you're like, I didn't sign off, but I was also in Kumade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to really talk about it, but uh, you know, I guess we're that, here. Um, Danny was not in Kumade, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that book, Autobiography of a Yogi, mm-hmm. um, which I highly recommend to anyone who's remotely interested in Eastern traditions mm-hmm. or uh, yogic path, it's an incredible book. Mm-hmm. Um I do believe that the man who wrote it, Paramahansa Yogananda, was very one without a shadow of a doubt, authentic, sincere, mm-hmm. you know, yogi at a very high level. Yes. When he passed away, and I do believe in these siddhis, they call them these soul powers. I don't want to get too, you know, spiritual and <laughs> but um when he passed away, he, you know, he kinda some 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 of these yogis and beings at that level, sometimes they'll perform a little miracle here and there mm-hmm. in a very like subtle way with their close disciples. Mm-hmm. If one of one of their disciples or something has this doubt of something, whatever, it's hard to explain. It's not like a, like an ego thing that they do to like the masses. Mm-hmm. Yogananda, when he passed, his body remained completely undecomposed in a perfectly pristine state without, with zero decomposition for 30 days. Wow. And he said he would do that. He's like, I'm not going to do anything crazy. I'm not going to like, like resurrect my body, but I'll do this just so that for a few people and my disciples out of these hundreds of people that think that like they can see that not that I have this power, that you have this power, right? Mm. That's a real guru, right? And the meaning of the word guru is good means darkness in Sanskrit and ru is light. Mm. So it's this concept of that, which brings you from darkness to light. Mm. It's not necessarily a human being. Yes. Um, the Sikh tradition is very beautiful and they had these 10 gurus, right? Mm-hmm. His lineage. And after the 10th guru, he said, it, I'm the last one in the body. Mm-hmm. And now the guru is this scripture, right? This book, mm-hmm. um, which some people might have mixed some feelings about. I, re- I read the, mm-hmm. a, a portion of it. The first 30 pages basically summarizes the entire message of the whole 1400 page scripture. Mm-hmm. And it is some of the most profound if not the most profound words I've read in mm-hmm. this lifetime. Um, he was written by these beings who had attained a certain level. And there's no question some of the things they had performed and some of the things that had happened um, mm-hmm. and the credibility from other spiritual beings in their times is like a few hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, that this, these book, these words are this guru that brings you from darkness to light, just guiding you to your own direct experience. Mm-hmm. So, there's this concept in India that in the yoga traditions that you cannot cross the river, right? Like cross the ocean of Maya to get from this place of the mind and suffering to the other shore, which is unification with the higher self, with the over soul, with God, with whatever, all these different words and concepts, right? But uh, without a guru, that you need a guru to like essentially be that boat for you or Mm -hmm. like help push the boat in the right direction. Yes. Or kind of help guide the currents for you. Um, the idea is like your body is the boat. That's the Mm -hmm. vessel. It's this massive gift Mm -hmm. and 
incredibly rare opportunity to incarnate in the, in the philosophy to into incarnate into a human body. Mm. It's this incredible opportunity to have this chakra energy system with, you know, energy centers and energy channels with Kundalini and Shakti mm. and all these things in the third eye where we can, as a disembodied, as like a soul, as a light being come into a physical form. Mm-hmm. And only in this form can we actually then like transcend out of physical matter. Mm. Um, That's really interesting. Cause I know uh, Gary V likes to say how the odds of being a human being are 400 trillion to one. And so the fact that you're even a human is incredibly rare and a great gift. Right. Right. I mean, they believe the yogis believe that, that we go through the, uh, the, like the hierarchy of life, right. That, mm-hmm. um, from mineral to you know rock, like <laughs> to a plant life and trees to animals. And mm-hmm. we go through all these incarnations as from the time we're incarnated as a soul through different, different planets and all this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And we talk about that stuff. And, and it's only once we evolve through having just that experience, that's how we grow. That's how we grow mm-hmm. experience. We gain that wisdom and through having all these experiences of being a, a worm and an ant and being a rabbit and a, a deer and a tiger and, mm-hmm. an and an oak tree. And finally we get to a human form mm-hmm. and it's this m- incredible opportunity and say, don't, don't squander it. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't just waste it, you know, in the sense pleasures. Right. As they teach, like, uh, try to withdraw your consciousness back into the self, mm-hmm. um, and not lose it in the external world. And obviously that's, that's easier said than done. You know, it's a, f- it can be a really fun, enjoyable experience just being a human, uh, living in this world, you know, all the things we get to experience. And mm-hmm. so, and it's, it's not to say, Oh, like close your eyes and ears and mouth and like go in a cave for 20 years. And like, that's, that is a, viable path to enlightenment a lot of people have done it mm-hmm. um but the, it's not the only path right? right there's also the path of the householder and it's considered the more noble path um to be in the world and to contribute to the world and to go within right in this morning practice and mm-hmm. in your spirit own spiritual practice or whatever it is to cultivate and to connect and cultivate with that light and then bring it back into the world right um, back to the whole guru thing. Um, <laughs> you know, they believe that you can't get there unless you have a guru. And I really didn't like that <laughs> when I read, I was like, no, I don't agree with this. I went to this ashram uh-huh. and, um, I was there for a month and it was a, a strong belief that they had. And I would get into these very deep debates with some of the, you know, Brahmins and, you know, the monks that live there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I think at some level we agreed, but they were, they just had a little bit of a delusion about it. But at the end of the day, I do believe, I believe that the guru is in everything. Mm. Um, and that's this beautiful teaching from, that I got from actually from the Sikh scripture. Mm-hmm. They say that the guru is the sound current, right? Like in the beginning was the word, like mm-hmm. all is sound. Very mm. interesting thing you go into it that like sound precedes light, right? Vibration mm-hmm. is the root of everything in creation and observable universe at least. And so that they say that the guru is in the nod in the sound current. 
and the guru is the divine mother and the divine father. The guru is Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, the creator, preserver, and destroyer of all worlds, or the, the father, son, and the Holy Ghost. It's all the guru, right? So it's like, and I experienced this mm. in ways that defy words, where I experience, you know, it's like, it's like this. When you're having this really intense inner experience, you're contemplating something or you're, you know, something's really messing with your mind. You're looking for an answer for something, whatever it is. You get in your car and you just press the power on on the radio and the song that comes on and immediately it's like these five or six words or like these few words that are so specifically meant for what you needed to hear in that moment that it releases like this light bulb or this tear mm-hmm. that which I know we've all had some level of experience of that. It, can, it doesn't mean it have to be the radio. It could be a, a, a lightning strikes in the distance at this exact moment. You had this particular thought and you felt like that meant something, right? Mm-hmm. Any of that, like that's the guru, right? It's, it's all around us. It's, it's within us and it's all around us. And it's, they conceive it, they, they conceptualize it as the force of creation. Mm-hmm. Like the guru is God, quote unquote, right? Yes. The guru is creation. And it's that part of creation that wants to bring everything from quote unquote darkness to light mm-hmm. from disconnection to connection. Um, and that's very beautiful to me. So yeah, that's, that's amazing, man. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe what was intended in that book, or I could be wrong, but you, you know better than me, but maybe what was intended in that book is when they use the term guru, they weren't talking about, an actual physical person or more so talking about the symbolism of what it is. So that, or, or maybe that, I don't know. Yeah. You tell me. <laughs> so it's interesting because that yogi's lineage. So what they do say is that the guru doesn't need to be in a body. Mm. And that's something that they do believe. But in that lineage, they still kind of hinted at this idea that you still got to have a a guru. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a guru who is not in a body. Like your guru hypothetically could be Paramahansa Yogananda, or it could be his guru who is Sri Yukteswar mm-hmm. or his one or whatever. Um, because these beings are still present in the astral and their mm-hmm. realms, whatever. Um, and it just, it's kind of like, okay, I, in my opinion, but that's like, all right, we're splitting hairs. Yeah. Like, you know, if we're all, I, we're all one mm-hmm. on this energetic molecular and energetic level and spiritual level. So why do I need to have this guru that's in a body or not a body, but it's this one entity mm-hmm. when it could just be all of creation is my guru, right? Yes. This energy, this consciousness within deep within my own, beyond my mind, right? Not my egoic mind, but within my consciousness and within my heart, that's my guru, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. And, you know, and I think it's important that people are mindful of that. There's too many charlatans. It's so, it sickens me, you know, like hearing these stories. And and the one that I went through was Yogi Bhajan, um, mm. who was uh, a lot of people, I'm sure most of you have heard of Kundalini Yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was really into it. And I had read this book, right, Autobiography of Yogi, which talks about this style of yoga called Kriya Yoga, which involved like breathing up and down the spine and, you know, you know, getting to, and all these examples of people who would get to this place where they could levitate, they could remain in a still state of meditation for 
a week at a time, no food, no water, um, with just like, and there's lots of examples. In India, this stuff is commonplace, mm-hmm. which always blew my mind. When I learned about that as a kid, I thought that was so interesting that there, that people levitating was like, oh yeah, my uncle saw one yogi in a, in a cave levitating when he was like 19 and it's this common thing. So, and that's just like, levitating is like one example, but, um, you know, I really wanted the, the good stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like I got, I went to a yoga class at like LA fitness at some gym and I was like, that was cool, but this <laughs> is uh, so it's not I, what I'm looking for. Right. Some of them brought me to a Kundalini yoga class and I was like, okay, like this seems better, but I didn't like some of it, but I went to a few more and I ended mm-hmm. up having an experience and a little bit of an experience. And I said, you know what? I want to go deeper into this. I end up months and months and months later, I, I got, I went to, I did, I'm 19 years old and I do an intensive to become Mm. certified as an instructor of Kundalini yoga. Mm. So it's like, anyway, I do that. I'm, you know, very deeply invested in this practice. I practice Kundalini yoga probably about 90 minutes a day. I meditated probably about two to three hours a day. I'm at this ashram and I end up having really intense experiences. One thing I can say that I know happened was in my energy, in my energy system, my my energy system became imbalanced mm-hmm. and it, what you know i basically blasted up this energy from the root of my spine up to my you know third eye and my crown mm-hmm. and it was not ready for it um and what i came to conclude for a long time was that that system of kundalini yoga as taught by yogi bhajan um wasn't safe mm-hmm. and i dug a lot deeper and you know my issue with it became okay he's saying that you know, and he came over to the States in like the seventies. He I mean he has a, a massive following. Actually had a massive following, right? Like thousands and thousands of students all over the country. Kundalini yoga is everywhere. Mm-hmm. This guy brought this guy brought it here, whatever. So he claimed that a lot of these techniques were these ancient yogic techniques mm-hmm. of breath work, of mantra, of meditation, of asana and postures that he, you know, is breaking so many rules to just share with Westerners, right? problem is you go into it and you find out that a lot of these techniques like almost majority of them i don't say that but a lot of them he made up so he kind of combined this technique from tantric yoga mm-hmm. this tantric yogic asana meditation technique with this mantra word from sikh scripture mm-hmm. and some other stuff from like this tibetan lama that he studied with and combined it into this technique and said, this is a 5,000-year-old technique. Do it every day. It'll get you to enlightenment. And it sucks because, I don't say, I hate to say, I don't to say it like that, but I'm bummed about it because uh, I still have a lot of people I really love and care about that still practice like that technique, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? Thinking it's going to get them to some level of state, but it's tough. And so anyways, I knew that I couldn't teach it anymore. Mm-hmm. That was a very difficult experience for me because... I, that was my passion. It is my passion is yoga, meditation, uh, self-realization, mm-hmm. getting myself there and then trying to help others get there as well. Um, down the road. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't teach it anymore. And, um, what about it? Um, made you realize that you couldn't teach it anymore. Like what was the moment that you kind of had this realization? It was after having the experience that I had where my energy got so severely imbalanced mm-hmm. and, following that digging deep into just researching more, you know, Mm -hmm. and to circle back to that question you asked me earlier, right. Of how 
can people maybe suss those things out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, have a better barometer for the charlatans or the authentic teachers, mm-hmm. right? And I think one of the best things you can do is just do some due diligence, mm-hmm. you know, do due diligence. Um, and I like a lot. And um, go look online, look at what other people's experiences were, look at who their teacher was, if they have mm-hmm. an actual traceable lineage. Yogi Bhajan had this really like, amazing lineage these teachers that he studied with were considered very advanced right came to come to find out that he kind of made it up mm. that these were real people but he didn't really study with them as long as he said and yeah he just kind of said, he said that it was did. 16 years things like that um i also there's a lot of examples of people with yogi bhajan and kundalini yoga is taught by him that had seizure. i know a girl had a seizure while she was doing a kundalini yoga practice Whoa. um blacked out was doing it by herself in her room mm blacked out woke up on the ground like kind of a little contorted and was like what the f just happened to me you know what i mean so um that's yeah. wild man and that that, that that's funny because like <laughs> i think i had this expectation of when i was like oh what what can you do to kind of like suss out these people i thought you were gonna uh-huh. give me like almost like a like a spiritual feeling or technique or something that you could kind of <laughs> go to and you're like you should just google it <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you gotta you know, look, use the modern times and look, look at their people. forehead where their third eye is and kind of like wiggle your pinky <laughs> finger and to see if you get a feeling in your belly or not if you get the feeling then it's good <laughs> or or you can google it <laughs> either one works <laughs> and let me let me also share a word Yes. On that note, because I had another experience with another yogi from the Himalayas mm-hmm. who I really felt was very authentic. Mm-hmm. And I went and took a retreat with him mm-hmm. um, to be initiated into actually into Kriya Yoga, right? Into the spinal breathing pranayama technique of Kriya mm-hmm. Yoga, which is like, in any case, I had this really intense experience where I was, okay, so I was kind of doubtful of him. Mm-hmm. I was very skeptical. I've been taken for a ride before already, you know, and, and I think a healthy dose of skepticism is, is useful in all these things. Yes. Uh, so it's kind of where I was at. And he opened up the opportunity to ask him any question mm-hmm. on the second day of the retreat. Um, if anybody wanted to walk up, stand in line and there were maybe about 10 people out of like a hundred, 150 that were there that went and stood in line. So I was standing there and I won't go into the details of it, but I had an, a question in my mind that I really wanted to ask him that was very egoic. It was very like self-centered. It was about these two different girls in my life. Mm. And I'm like thinking to myself, I can't ask him this question. Like that's so ridiculous. You know, it's so like inconsequential. Mm-hmm. Let me ask him something more like, Hey, what do you think, you know, the best practice for me might be or terms of advancing myself along the spiritual path just kind of wanted to ask him something like that and that's where i was like okay i'm gonna ask him that right Mm -hmm. but i had that other question in the back of my head and that's experience where he was answering this question to this this guy in front of me right Mm -hmm. and i'm like 10 15 feet back you know and he's answering this question he's talking he's answering this guy in front of me's question but he's looking me straight in the eyes and i won't go into the details but i tell you he was answering the question that i had about these two girls by name while he was looking me in the eyes and I named, I damn near shit myself. <laughs> like, like, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, so that happened. And I'm, I'm 
I'm extremely shook at this point. I get up to him next and I'm like almost in tears. I'm like, I don't know what to say or do. Yeah. So I look at him like, I mean, so this is a very profound experience I had with him. And at this point, I'm like, whoa, he's the real deal. Yeah. Right. And I ask him like, man, I say, Yogi Raj, you, you know, I, I don't know what to ask you right now. That was really intense for me. He already knew. Yeah, obviously he, he was he looking me in the eyes for like 30 seconds straight answering my question that I didn't want to ask him. And I'm like, it was, it was wild. So that I say, what, how can I ask him the question I was going to, right? Like, how can I best serve? That's mm-hmm. what it became, right? Like, how can I best serve? And like this world, right? Like mm-hmm. I am about this world. And he said to me, you know, practice Kriya Yoga every day, one year, come back to next year. I make you Hamsacharya. Like he'll make me like a teacher of that technique. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, okay. And uh, my life, a lot of things happened. I stayed on for a while and that's a whole other story. But the, the, the reason I brought this up is because I still had a little bit of a feeling about him. Mm. And so I end up doing some real, real deep due diligence, right? And I started digging a lot more and apparently some more stuff had come out in recent years. This mm-hmm. was 10 years ago that I had this experience, maybe like 11. Yes. Um, something like four, three, four, five years ago, more stuff came out. Some, some women came out having some less than savory experiences with this guy. Mm. You know, it's not cool stuff. And um, so long story short, I'm not thoroughly convinced that he is a fully awakened yogic master, mm-hmm. as he claims to be. He gave himself this name. Yogi Raj Gurunath Siddhanath, which in English means Yogi King, Guru Lord, Perfected Being Lord. <laughs> like, and, and, and uh, I'm convinced. <laughs> it's kind of absurd. And even like seeing this guy's name, you'd be like, dude, it's ridiculous. Like, it's like, who I, gave you that name? I'm, I am Victor, coolest coach ever. <laughs> <laughs> motherfucker Jones. <laughs> <laughs> the baddest motherfucker of all time. That's what my business card says now. <laughs> right. You know, you know, Paramahansa Yogananda, for example. Mm-hmm. So these, these names, right? And Maharaji, that's like great king, right? These yogis, mm-hmm. that's Baba Ram Dass's guru, teacher, you know. Um, Paramahansa Yogananda means like like great swan. And the hamsa, the swan, is a symbol of the soul mm-hmm. and the soul's the liberated soul that yes. lies. So, it's, you know, that's Paramahansa. And Yogananda means like yogic, the, the bliss of union. Mm-hmm. So, but he was given that name yes. by his guru. Once he had trained for many years, you know, mm-hmm. like he didn't just like give himself that name. He was like, you know what sounds really cool? Right. Let me open up my book of sweet wrestling names. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, but Yogi Raj, you know, supposedly had received that name from his guru, supposedly was Babaji, who's this like mm-hmm. mystical yogic being who lives in Himalayas that a lot of people believe is real. And I certainly do. After mm-hmm. all my research and everything. And, um, but he apparently had this direct experience with him. So there's a few people, there's a few gurus out there that say, my guru is Babaji, my guru is Mahavtar, Gorakshanath Babaji from the Himalayas. And, and that's the lineage that Paramahansa Yogananda comes from, mm-hmm. but in a more traceable way, um, a more bona fide way. Yes. So in any case, you know, yeah, did some due diligence and I'm not, I'm not convinced he's a fully awakened yogic master that he claims to be. Mm-hmm. This, now he calls himself a Sat Guru Nath. Now he's, which is true Guru Lord, which is like Sat Guru. It's like, which words is, is, is sound high, more high convincing? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, who gave you that title? And I did. You know, <laughs> and like, 
And but I mean, mind you, this guy looked me in the eyes, knew what I wanted to ask, and looked into my soul, man, and said words that shook me to my core. Yeah, I was 19 years old. This rocked my world. You know, I was 20 actually, mm-hmm. and you know, thankfully, I had already gone on my rides and mm-hmm. gone through all that stuff, and I didn't like drink the Kool Aid per se, right? Mm-hmm. Um. That being said, you know, it, it's, it's just, I just wanted to share that to just goes to show yeah, that, you know, you got like that guy who made the Kumate film, who's like literally just like, he's just some random dude. He's just yeah. an average, he's just like some schmuck and he wanted to make a movie <laughs> and like see if it worked. I'm going to yeah. like pretend I'm a guru and, and that even does it. But even for someone who's discerning, I'm sitting there in this guy's yoga retreat, like, I don't know if he's real, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not convinced, you know, but get some wisdom from this or whatever. And I get in line and, and he hits me with that. And I'm like, I mean, I had a, like a crisis moment for a second. Like, yo, like Mm -hmm. what's going on here? Like, maybe I can really learn from this guy. I mean, you know, like almost like maybe I I look to this dude as a guru, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so it goes to show you, you know, and this isn't not just in the world of yoga, right? It's in the world of shamans and uh, medicine Mm -hmm. holders and in the world of business, especially due diligence you know what i'm saying you look for that authenticity you look for that you know that humanity in them mm-hmm. um and yeah in the world of business and anything for sure and the spiritual realm is where it gets like in my opinion it gets real sticky but it, it goes both ways it's, it's yeah it, it definitely gets sticky in that realm especially because that is you're starting to mess with somebody's faith and all of their core beliefs on their own existence. Right. And doing it for your own gain or self-aggrandizing. Mm-hmm. And that's when it, it gets not only very sticky, but also, in my opinion, very dark. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. The lengths that you're going right now for your own intentions are insane. When, and what I will say what, what scares me is in the realm of business, I think a lot of times people intentionally do these things. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of times where they are just basically nescient to their own toxic behavior. Yeah. Right. And they're just not even aware that they're being such a piece of shit for lack of better words. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the spiritual realm, what scares me, right. Is you got these people who are most undoubtedly very aware of their, um, manipulation and, and, uh, Mm -hmm these things and are doing it intentionally for monetary gain and for egoic power and mm-hmm. status and all these things. And, um, and then, and then the next level is that there's some of these people and even in the world of business, right? Like the mind is a very powerful thing mm-hmm. and we as human beings are far more powerful than we were taught as yes. children. Um, I believe we have ex- like extreme potential, incredibly, you know, incredible power that we have for perception mm-hmm. uh, within for affecting ourselves and others. And, you know, it can get into the light or the dark. And so you got these people out there that, you know, in the spiritual world who are using these things for not such great purposes. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, it's ultimately just important to be mindful, always kind of check in with your inner compass. Yes. It will always kind of have that like, little voice you know mm-hmm. and that or feeling you know whatever it yes. is yes and um 
you know, at the end of the day, it's that it's remembering that it, it's all within you. Yeah. Yeah. I know um, you and I were talking about the, the Zen stoic intentions and delusions. You know, we've had multiple conversations about this during your, your visit here. And one of those things is that your emotions will always act as a compass and tell you if you're pointing towards intentionality or delusion, and it'll do so through what you're feeling. If you're feeling anything unpleasant, even if it's just very mild agitation, it is very likely that you're pointing yourself in the direction of a delusion or that you're sensing someone else point themselves in the direction of delusion and trying to take you along with them Mm -hmm. into that delusion. And it's one of the things that you got to pay attention to those feelings, pay attention to the unpleasant emotions that come up, allow them to guide you because there's boundless wisdom in our emotions and not uh, wisdom or an authority in your emotions. Like, Oh, I feel bad. So I should go have a popsicle or go have some ice cream. <laughs> like, no, it's not about soothing the feeling. It's about listening to it and understanding, like, what is it trying to tell you? What is it trying to direct you to? That, and definitely, you know, use Google. Because that... <laughs> Both of those things combined. Intuition plus Google equals better discernment. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent, man. Well, Danny, I sincerely appreciate you being here on the Zen Stark Path. This has been you know, really eye opening and I and I've definitely been able to to see some new distinctions around the spiritual path and the the pitfalls that somebody can fall through in in going along these and finding, you know, spiritual teachers and gurus. Um yes, I did just say gurus in the same way that you said it, because you said it so many times that I'm not saying it normal anymore. <laughs> or normal in my view. <laughs> but I have one more question for you. This is something sure. that I, I like to ask and in various different ways. But if let's say the last 10 years of your life where you learned all these lessons, you were able to download all this wisdom from painful experiences as well as blissful experiences. Let's say like that was wiped. You forgot all of it, but you were allowed to keep only one thing Mm -hmm. that would help you to build yourself back up. What would that one thing lesson or principle be for you? Mm -hmm. You know what comes to mind is the precept to love yourself that all is one. Mm. Right? Loving yourself as you do and, and then as you do it naturally flows to all others. I think that alone is the most healing and necessary component to walking the path. Yes. It helps us get back up when we trip, right? It, it helps us start, you know, we don't feel like we're, you know, love ourselves. We don't like good enough for it or anything like that. We might not even start along it. And so, yeah, that's a deep question, man. Thanks for asking. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, it's a fantastic answer. And I think that it is very profound as simple as that sounds to love yourself when you love yourself, you are able to love others. You are able to kind of create that integration or that oneness with with those around you. So, right. Danny, thank you so much for being on the Zen Story Path, man. It was, a, it was a blast having you here. I appreciate you, brother. <laughs>